Go ahead and find John 16 with me. John 16. John 16 and verse 23. I want to begin by reading, I think, what amounts to be a pretty unbelievable promise Jesus makes to his disciples here. John 16 and verse 23. In John 16, 23, Jesus says to the apostles here on the night uh, he's to be arrested and betrayed, he says this, In that day you will ask nothing of me, truly, truly I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. That, uh, that's a pretty incredible promise Jesus makes here. And in fact, the words he gives about prayer and the guarantee of God's positive response to our prayers, that, that it's so incredible, we, we won't even let ourselves take it too seriously. What I mean is, you know, the preacher who reads this verse feels the need to stand up and qualify it up and down and say, well, this doesn't mean what you might want it to mean. Uh, Here's all the things that doesn't mean. Jesus is not simply giving us a blank check. If we just pray, then we just get whatever we want. And there's a lot going on there. We're going to talk about this in context in a little bit. But I think part of the reason we can't bring ourselves to run with this promise Jesus makes is because Jesus' words do seem contrary to our experience in prayer. Anyone who's ever prayed for any length of time knows the reality of unanswered prayers. That we bring our, repre- our, our request to God only to receive back silence. Or maybe, maybe even the opposite, it seems, of what we've asked for. So I want us to think this morning about God's answer to unanswered prayer. Now, right off the bat, I want to talk about an obvious yet insufficient answer to this question that we always have. There's an obvious yet insufficient answer And that is, our prayers often aren't answered because, one, our prayers are not faithful, or, number two, we are not faithful. Now, the main thrust of my sermon is that the answer is not this easily discerned. This is not the answer to every unanswered prayer. But I do think we need to begin by getting this out of the way. There is an easily discerned answer to this question. And we can tell that just by looking more closely at Jesus' words in the verse we've read. We can tell he's not offering us a blank check. Listen, looking again at what he says. He says, whatever you ask in my name. That doesn't mean if we just tag on the magic words in Jesus' name, amen, then the prayer will be answered. That's not what he's talking about. To ask in Jesus' name is to ask in accord with Jesus' character, in accord with his mission, to ask for the honor of Christ in his kingdom. When our prayers arise from a primary concern for Jesus' name, Not a primary concern for me getting what I want. Not a primary concern for my name. But a primary concern for Jesus' name. Our prayers will take a shape, take on a shape that fits perfectly with Jesus' mission. And Jesus says, you should expect every one of those prayers offered in my name. You should expect for every one of those prayers to be granted. There's further clarification in John 15 and verse 7 when Jesus says something similar. In John 15 and verse 7, he says, if you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And so Jesus says those who abide in Christ, those who abide in me, can expect to receive whatever they ask of the Father. And the surrounding context describes what abiding in Christ looks like. It looks like depending on Him. It looks like obeying Him. It looks like loving Him. It involves being pruned and fruitful, growing in holiness and discipleship. And so what Jesus is offering 
in the certain answers to our prayers has this context. If we are growing in Him, if we are hearing His Word, if we are being transformed into His character, if we begin to share His priorities as we work for His kingdom, then that person and that Christ's kingdom-shaped prayer, they will race to the Father in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, you should expect for those prayers to be granted. So, by implication, there is an obvious answer to the problem of unanswered prayer. Which is, those unanswered prayers may be offer, we may be offering are not truly in Jesus' name. They're not with His mission and His character at the center of our hearts. They aren't faithful to that. They don't align with his mission and his priorities. They're about something other than his glory. They're about us using him to get what we want. Those prayers, by implication, we shouldn't expect to answer with this absolute guarantee. Let me just, I think James, the brother of Jesus, describes what this sort of prayer looks like and where it comes from. This is what James said of of a certain type of unanswered prayer. He says, you ask and do not receive. Well, why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so James says, if if our prayer is not from a position of abiding in Christ, but if our prayer is really grows out of our attachment to idols, our attachment to the world, and we're simply asking God to cut a check so that we can draw nearer to false gods, what should we expect God to do with those prayers? God's not going to assist us in our spiritual adultery just because we're asking him to help us do that. No, he says, if you're being an adulterous people, seeking for things other than God, and you ask God to help you with that, don't expect God to give you what you want. So the easy answer to the problem of unanswered prayer is that those prayers are unfaithful, which typically means we are unfaithful. If we're using prayer to ask God to give us success in a bank robbery, don't be surprised if he doesn't answer. Now, that said, that's an obvious and needed response to the question of unanswered prayer. However, we also need to recognize the problem of unanswered prayer is not exhaustively explained away in that answer. Because sometimes we pray, not obviously hardened in sin, making every effort to abide in Christ, His Word is abiding in in us, and we lift up good, Christ-exalting prayers in Jesus' name. And then, in spite of all of that, we're not being the people of James 4, we're being the people of, 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 of John 16. And despite that, God apparently does not grant us what we seek. That happens too. So, for example, we pray for the salvation of our parents or our spouse or our friends or our kids, and yet they continue to persist in unbelief. We know this is God's will. And we pray for it and it doesn't happen. We pray for the preservation of life only to witness the tragic victory of disease and death, even among someone very young. We pray for victory over the addiction to alcohol or pornography or some other besetting sin, and yet the victory doesn't seem to come. We pray for the preservation of a marriage that ends in divorce, or we pray for a godly husband or wife only to face decades of disappointment and loneliness. There are hundreds of Christ-honoring, neighbor-loving things we pray for in life. And God doesn't seem to do anything in response to them. And I think really it's then that the questions and the doubts start coming. And we start asking, well, what, God is, what is God actually like? 
Is God cold to my request? Is He blind? Is He deaf to my prayers? Is God not good? Or am I not good enough to have a prayer answered by Him? Is God loving? Is God just? And maybe even comes to a place where we begin to say, is God even there? Do my prayers go higher than the ceiling? This is the tension of unanswered prayer. Jesus means for us to pray with zeal, to pray with expectancy. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We are to pray with expectancy that God will act for our good in response to our pleas to Him in Christ. But how do we sustain that expectancy when faced with years of silence? How do we not become jaded by repeated, long-lasting disappointment in our prayers for God and we're praying for seemingly good things, things we know that God wants? How do we not give up on prayer in that case? So there is no silver bullet. There are no magic three points here that cover every contingency, that solve this problem once and for all. But what I do want to share with you this morning are four biblical insights that encourage us to never give up on prayer, but to persevere in it, even when God seems not to answer. There are four, I think, important biblical insights we need to always have before us. The first is this. We are instructed not to lose heart in prayer. Go with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. You realize God is fully aware of this problem. He says so. God knows we will face weariness and despondency in our prayer life. God already knows that. He is well aware that persevering in expectant, hope-filled prayer will be difficult for us at times. That's why Jesus tells a parable about that exact thing. This is Luke 18 and verse 1. And verse 1 tells us what the point of the parable is. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That is, lose heart in our prayers. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so the story goes that a widow who has experienced some injustice persistently makes her plea before an unjust judge. And the judge takes no action in response to her plea. And yet after her relentless begging, he finally does enact justice for her. And Jesus compares this widow's experience to the disciples' life in prayer. Not that our judge is like this judge, but that we can feel like this woman did. Again, the point of this whole parable is verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect they ought always to pray and not lose heart. You see, Jesus expects losing heart will be a major temptation when we pray. He knows sometimes disciples will feel like this widow, knocking in vain on the door of an apathetic judge. It will feel that way sometimes. And he knows that that silence will tempt us to grow weary and to give up asking, to lose heart, to lose faith in prayer. Jesus expects us to battle that tendency, not to be totally free of it. 
Now, I don't know about you, but, but there's almost something strangely comforting about this thought. That our weariness in prayer doesn't catch off God off guard. He doesn't say, what? I never thought of this before. How could you do that? God doesn't say that. It doesn't offend his sensibilities to know that we will grow weary in prayer. We will be tempted to do that. It doesn't offend God that that might happen. He already knew about it. That's why he anticipates it in this parable. Now, it doesn't answer all the questions. It doesn't resolve all the frustrations. But it does reassure us of God's attentiveness and compassion for us. He's not disappointed in our propensity to grow weary. He's determined to encourage us through that weariness. And so when weariness in prayer creeps in, it helps us to know God's patience isn't so short as to give up on us simply because we're weary at this moment. And may I also remind you while we're here that God not only understands the temptation to grow weary, God only understands what it means to have prayer go unanswered, He sympathizes with it having experienced it personally because it was Jesus Himself who prayed to His Father, let this cup pass from Me, only to have every last drop of that cup poured out on Him hours later. Don't lose heart, God says. I know what this is. I know what this problem is. I anticipate it. And so we need to listen to him in this parable and say, yes, I will not grow weary. I will keep on asking. Number two, this is a reminder to be assured that God is heard. Be assured that God is heard. Go with me to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. So in Genesis 17, God has told the 99-year-old Abraham that the 90-year-old Sarah will give birth to the promised son. And he's laughing at the thought. And in verse 18, Abraham offers up this plea. This is what he thinks God should do about this. He says, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So Ishmael, this is Abraham's son by the Egyptian slave Hagar, born of Abraham and Sarah's lack of faithfulness. And yet, what Abraham is saying is, Ishmael is still my son. He's still my beloved son. And so in verse 18, he's pleading for his son's good, essentially saying, let the heir be Ishmael. I have a son. Let the promises be carried on through him. Let him live. Let him receive blessing from you. Don't let Ishmael pay for my sins. It's not Ishmael's fault that this happened. He was just born. Please be gracious to my only son. That's Abraham's prayer in verse 18. And I want to say, I think it's a good prayer. It's a father's sincere, upright, earnest, loving prayer for his son's blessing. This is the kind of prayer God wants fathers to pray for their sons. But God responds in verse 19. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Good prayer in verse 18, but a clear no in verse 19. Ishmael will not be the heir of the covenant blessings. And so we should say Abraham knows well what it is to hear a no from God, to hear an unanswer, a lack of answer to his prayer. But I think the words that comes, come next are the words I want to focus on, verse 20. As for Ishmael, God says, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. And will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So God 
acts promptly to respond to Abraham, but he doesn't do it by giving him precisely what he asked for. What he asked for is, let the covenant carry on through Ishmael. So he doesn't give him precisely what he asked for, but neither does he altogether ignore the heart of his request either. His response to Abraham's prayer attends to the heart of Abraham's request by, says, yes, by saying, yes, I am going to bless your son Ishmael. I'm gonna, not going to leave him out in the cold. I'm not going to give you exactly what you asked for, but I'm not going to ignore the heart of your prayer either. I am going to correct some of your faulty assumptions, and, and you think this is the only way. It will be through Isaac that the covenant will be kept. And so in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, God responds to Abraham's prayer, not with what Abraham felt the answer should be, but what what Abraham and everyone else actually needed. Here's what I'm trying to say. What, what if God responds this same way to every prayer prayed to him in faith through Christ? What if God responds to every prayer essentially this way? So we pray our version of, may Ishmael live before you. We pray a prayer that is born of godly concern, but is not in the plans of God. That's what the prayer of Abraham is in verse 18. It's godly concern, but it's not in God's plan. And so God responds to our Ishmael-type prayer by saying, as he says in verse 19, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Or it says in verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. That doesn't mean I'm going to give you exactly what you asked for in regard to Ishmael. But it is a response that tells us that God has heard our prayers. He has listened attentively, every one of them, even the ones he doesn't grant, or the ones he doesn't grant in the way or the timing we might imagine. God expressly assures Abraham and us, I have heard you. Even if I don't give you exactly what you're asking for, I've heard you. He doesn't turn a deaf ear to the longings of our hearts. Whatever the cause of his seeming silence or his apparently delayed response, it's not inattentiveness. That's not the answer. He hears us always. And with loving attention, he will respond and perhaps already is responding for our good, granting not the content of our prayers exactly, but perhaps attending to the heart of them. It might not be giving the specifics of what we in the moment think is most needed, but be assured, God has heard and He is going to answer in the best way possible. And so the assurance that Abraham received is that God has heard. Second, third rather, remember this, God doesn't forget or ignore, but often gathers gathers prayers. So let's go from Genesis to Revelation here. Uh, Revelation chapter 8. So at this point in the vision of Revelation, God is about to begin his trumpet judgments on the earth. The trumpets are about to blow. And we're given a glimpse here in the beginning of chapter 8 of the throne room in heaven in preparation for the blast of these trumpets of judgment. And our attention in verse 3 is taken to the altar. And I want you to take note of what is in the altar and what is done with what's in the altar. Revelation 8 and verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. 
So did you catch what was in the altar before God? It was the prayers of all the saints. And this connects back to a scene uh, back in chapter 6, in chapter 6 and verse 9. We've been here before this throne room and this altar and around God's throne. Back in chapter 6 and verse 9, we've seen these prayers and where they came from. Revelation 6 and verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, how long, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell there? So here are the prayers of God's martyrs raising up before him. Verse 11. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. For a period of time, these martyrs, people who were as faithful as they could possibly have been, whose prayers absolutely conformed to God's will, they're crying out for God's justice to take hold on the earth. For a period of time, those people are told to wait. Their prayers are offered and then they are told, wait. But in chapter 8, an angel comes with a golden censer and he takes what's on the altar, those gathered prayers of his people. He adds incense to the prayers of the saints and then he throws this holy mixture upon the earth. He throws it down upon the earth, beginning God's judgments. I think there's a profound revelation here. When God acts to judge evil, when God rights wrongs, when God accomplishes his purposes in a big way, the means by which he does that in Revelation 8, the means by which he does that is the prayers of the saints. That when God finally acts to judge, he doesn't just say, well, I've decided I'm going to do something now. I'm going to act to judge. I'm going to carry out my will. That's not what happens. How he does that is he collects and then he pours out the prayers of his righteous people, which for a period of time looked like they amounted to nothing. There are saints throughout the Bible who perish under oppressive, God-denying regimes who never saw the arrival of God's kingdom for which they cried out. There are countless people that describes. The saints of Hebrews 11 all laid hold of God's promises by faith, not by sight, not because they actually held them, but by the unseen means of, of exercise and faith. They earnestly sought God for their fulfillment, and all of them died not having received what was promised. That's what Hebrews 11.39 says. But these prayers were not ignored. They were not forgotten. They were not worthless. Instead, they were being gathered. They were being saved in order to be poured out in the fullness of time. What I'm suggesting is perhaps God purposes something better than acting to fully grant the prayers of His people individually, one at a time, or piecemeal, right? A little, little be accomplished here, a little here. Maybe that's not always how God works. What God does in Revelation 8 is He stores up those longings and He answers them on a grand scale at once. It might seem like God isn't acting in response to prayers for the defeat of death or evil. It might seem like God is not answering the prayers to vindicate His people once and for all and to make it obvious that righteousness, that serving God really was the way we should be. It might seem like those prayers didn't amount to much for a long time. But Revelation 8 says that was not true. He hears those prayers. He gathers them before Him on His heavenly altar. And He's simply waiting with patient wisdom until one day He'll pour out the bowl of prayers and incense on the world and act in definite fulfillment of every last one of them. 
not a single prayer for God's glory or the world's good will be cast aside. You know, the, the words Jesus taught us to pray are never prayed in vain. Jesus said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer always arises as sweet incense to him. And he's storing up those prayers for one day, an, a, a day of unimaginable glory and goodness. So what I'm suggesting is, maybe the issue is not that God has forgotten our prayers, that he's ignored them. Rather, maybe what he's doing is gathering them up until one day he answers all of them. All of those prayers prayed in Jesus' name, once and for all. And finally, I want to point out this. I want us to remember that silence is a part of the story. Silence is a part of the story. So we brought this up um, in our uh, class recently on Genesis chapter 1. I think there's a lot of insight to be gained about why God chooses to do things the way that he does them. Why does God take six days to create the world? That's an interesting question. Why does he take six days to do it? Could he not have done it instantaneously, all in a moment, in the blink of an eye? Couldn't he have just gone from nothing to everything, skipped to day six? He could have done that, but he doesn't do that. Why did you draw it out over six days? That's a question God wants us to ponder. And I think there are insights to be gained about the world and about God by pondering that question. So along the same lines, here's another question to ponder. Why is Jesus raised on the third day? So Jesus is crucified on a Friday, and he's raised from the dead on a Sunday. Why wouldn't a simple movement from death one day to resurrection the next be sufficient on consecutive days? I think that would be the worst thing in the world if that happened. Why put a whole day of nothing in between the cross and the resurrection? Why that Saturday, that Sabbath? And what I, I want us to do a thought experiment. I want you to imagine yourself in the shoes of the disciples on that Sabbath, the day in between the crucifixion and the resurrection. And I want you to imagine what that day would have been like. And we have a few clues in the Gospels about what that day was like for the disciples. I think we could say it was a day of anguish and disappointment, regret, failure. The disciples, it seems, all of their hopes were dashed about who they thought Jesus was. They hoped Jesus would redeem Israel, but instead he was killed, and killed messiahs were failed messiahs in their world. That's exactly what the men on the road to Emmaus say. They had, they had concluded when Jesus was killed in Luke 24. They said, we thought he was the one to redeem Israel, but we guess, we guess not because they thought he was still dead. It was a day of fear because their supposed king was dead and the authorities who killed him were alive and well and were probably coming for them next. It was a day when the idolatrous kingdoms of the world still apparently ruled the day and God's kingdom seemed to come to nothing. It was a day when death seemed to have the last word. The one claiming to be the Son of God was buried, defeated by death, and his people were isolated and alone and hiding in fear, fear, fear for their lives. It's a day of ambiguity. The question on the disciples' lips was, what's next? What hope do we have? What kind of imposter was the man lying in the tomb? They needed to rethink everything they thought they knew about the Messiah and God's kingdom. None of them said, oh, just wait a day. Jesus is going to be raised tomorrow. No one said that. It was a day of ambiguity, questions, what next? And it was a day of silence from God. At no point on that Saturday, 
amid all the darkness and uncertainty, at no point on that day was there a word from heaven. No one got a revelation on that day and said, let me tell you what's going to happen over the next days and weeks and years. They had to wait a full day to begin to answer that question. When we think about that silent Saturday between the cross and the resurrection, we realize this is a part of the experience of discipleship. It turns out that God not only expects the life of prayer to traverse seasons of weariness, seasons of weariness are at the heart of the gospel story that saves us. God granted his disciples that experience, that silence, and expected them to persevere through it. Again, this doesn't answer every question. This doesn't give us a pat answer for every seemingly unanswered prayer. But it does reassure us that the experience of silence as we perceive it, where God doesn't seem to answer and there doesn't seem to be any sense of of anything that that, that we're asking God to do and, and there's no response, it assures us that that experience of silence is not pointless. It's a part of the story that ultimately ends in good and beauty and peace. But the story that ends that way may have a period of silence in the middle of it. And so if as individuals or if as a church... We suffer seasons where prayer feels like a one-sided dialogue. It's not necessarily a result of our faithlessness or our sin. It might be, but it might not be. Some great moral defect in us may not be the issue. It's not necessarily an indication that we're on the outside, that we're outliers as Christians. It's not evidence that we're outside of God's will or outside of God's attention. It's not a sign that things are chaotically spinning out of God's control. It might be a part of the story. God's silence doesn't mean he doesn't hear. It just means the time for answer is still a day away, perhaps. It might mean we're still living on a silent Saturday. And so the question of why our prayers seem to go unanswered, this is a question I think will always plague God's people. It was a question people had in the Bible. There are several psalms. We didn't touch the psalms today, but several psalms opened... Just with the straight-up question, God, why haven't you answered me? God, where are you? Why have you turned your face away from me? This is a question God's people have always wrestled with and always will. And aside from obvious cases where we're at direct odds with God in our lives or direct odds in what we're asking for with God's will, aside from those, that obvious yet insufficient answer, there's not a set of pat answers to that question. God does not give us an exhaustive list of reasons why our prayers aren't answered. But what God has given us are insights about his character. As we learn who he is, we learn to trust him more. He knows this is an issue, which is why he encourages us not to lose heart ahead of time. And he assures us, as he assured Abraham, that he has heard. And he might not answer every direct request in exactly the way or time frame that we want, but we always have his loving attention. And he wants us to know that our prayers are gathered before him. His lack of answer may simply be a matter of him gathering up the prayers with the prayers of all his faithful people over the last few centuries. We may, like the martyrs under the throne, just be told to wait a little bit longer. But there comes a time when God pours out those prayers and answers them with a grand finality we never imagined. And he wants us to remember that silence is a part of the story. Even in the Bible, among the prophets, among the apostles, it's not like they had direct knowledge of God's action at every moment. They didn't have that. 
All of God's people have learned to wait in faith. And a part of the gospel story that saves us is a day of silent waiting. That silent Saturday. A day of uncertainty, a day of fear. But their faithful waiting was vindicated on the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead in victory. Silence is a part of the story. And so we end this sermon on prayer by asking you if you need to appeal to God. He has not turned his face away from us. He invites us to come to him. And he has assured us that if we seek him, that he can and he will be found. That is a prayer that will always be answered. And so if there's anyone that needs to seek him this morning, either to seek him to become one of his children in the first place, or to seek him for forgiveness, to confess your sins, to repent of them, whatever your spiritual need, we offer the invitation right now as we stand and sing. Why don't you let him come in? There's nothing in this world to keep you apart. What is your answer to him? Time after time he has waited before. Savior, my friend.